Romantics, welcome to a pod to you, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we're doing, I guess, the holiday uh, episode of our Bad Romance miniseries, talking about Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut, from 1999, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I'm really excited to welcome onto the podcast film critic, writer, and podcaster Josh Bell. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited. I'm at home for the holiday weekend with my family. So it's uh, it's a nice lot of eating and, you know, just hanging out. We just watched the first Knives Out movie. So we're excited to watch the sequel, which just dropped today on Netflix. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been pretty fun. How about yourself? How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm uh, I'm not traveling for the holidays, thankfully. So I have some <laughs> I have some family locally that I'm going to get to see, but I'm happy to avoid having to deal with all that and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> just uh, hoping to clear my schedule work wise to have a nice uh, relaxed holiday. Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's always easier when family is local. Uh, I've been here since Monday, so I thankfully escaped uh, the winter storm that's hitting the East Coast, but. Um, I'll, yeah, we'll see how how bad it gets. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to um, have you on the podcast. Although this morning I saw on Letterboxd that you kind of gave this movie uh, mixed-ish negative reviews. I'm curious to hear more about that. Um, but yeah, talking about Eyes Wide Shut. So first, I'd love to just talk to you about your um, kind of history with Stanley Kubrick and this movie, kind of you know, when you first thought, like what your first Kubrick movie was and how your opinion has changed or evolved, you know, over the years. Yeah, my history with Kubrick is a bit rocky, to be honest. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah hopefully it's, it's it's not a problem that I'm not a huge fan of this film in particular. I, I think it's fascinating, but I think a lot of what's fascinating about it is how it doesn't quite work. But um I think my first Kubrick movie that I saw was probably 2001 mm-hmm. and or no I take that back. I saw The Shining first because I was I was and am a huge Stephen King fan. And so I definitely saw The Shining probably when I was in middle school or something like that and was reading every Stephen King book I could get my hands on and watching every Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. And we we actually did an episode on The Shining of Awesome Movie Year and I talked about this that of course Stephen King famously does not like Kubrick's version of The Shining and thinks it's a bad adaptation. And I think I was such a a Stephen King fan that I was primed to agree with him and didn't particularly care for The Shining when I first saw it because it wasn't true to the book or whatever. And I I really like The Shining now. I've seen it um, a few more times and fairly recently for our episode. And I do think it's brilliant, even if it's not a perfect adaptation of Stephen King's book. So that was actually probably the first Kubrick movie that I saw. But I would say between that and then seeing 2001, also when I was in high school, my initial Kubrick experience was, 
I didn't like him. (laughs) I, I, I didn't and still don't like 2001. And I remember seeing that with a friend and it has such a towering reputation. And this was at a time when I was really getting into movies when I was in high school and seeking out things like 2001 that are classics that were beyond whatever I was seeing at the, the, the theater at the time. And I love sci-fi. And so we watched this and it, not ideal, you know, on some little CRT TV that was right, that right. We had at the time. And I just was totally baffled and not necessarily baffled as to like what's going on, although it can be baffling, but also as to why is this great? And a few years ago, I went and saw it again on the big screen on, in a theatrical re-release because I thought I'll appreciate it better now. And and yeah. certainly that's a better way to watch it. And I still didn't like it. Oh, but wow. um, yeah, so I don't know if I'm, I'm killing you here because I know you're yeah. a Kubrick fan, <laughs> but but there are other Kubrick movies that I that I do like. And we have done a couple of Kubrick episodes of Awesome Movie Year recently. Like I said, we did one on The Shining and then we did one because we're doing a season on the films of 1953. So we did an episode on Fear and Desire, Kubrick's yeah. first film from 1953, which I, I liked. I know it has sort of a shaky reputation, but I thought it was pretty good. And in that context, I also watched The Killing and Killer's Kiss, his other earliest films, um, all of which I liked. So that was kind of a nice, hey, I do yeah. like Kubrick reminder here. And, <laughs> and then I watched Eyes Wide Shut. But I, I did see Eyes Wide Shut in the theater when it first came out. And I think I was, again, sort of baffled or not. I didn't enjoy it, I don't think. And I had not seen it again until yesterday. And... I can't say that I loved it. <laughs> no, it's totally fair. Um, I <laughs> I apologize because for some reason I I know I pitched this episode to you just because like you were on my mind because I just had heard you on other podcasts and I wanted to have you on, and I thought that you liked the movie uh, because you said yes to coming on the podcast. So um, I I mean I'm glad you're here because I think it'll be a fun discussion. But um, definitely we'll have you back for a movie that you actually do love and enjoy um but yeah no i mean for me like so there are a lot of a lot of the early kubrick movies i haven't seen yet like the killing or killer's kiss or anything i mean because i i think the first movie i saw of his must have been dr strange love because i think i watched that in college for a comedy film class i was taking i didn't really care for it um i didn't really get the humor of it um and then i'm I think I watch Eyes Wide Shut next um, because I've, I think that I, I think that was when my I first started to really appreciate Nicole Kidman because uh, I think that's when around Rabbit Hole came out and that was like Rabbit Hole for me was like you know okay like I love Nicole Kidman I mean I'd seen her in, in a lot of other things before but I remember that was when like I had a huge Nicole Kidman face I watched Eyes Wide Shut and I remember also being a little disappointed slash baffled by it because I think the reputation of it was that it was a very like sexy movie um and uh I watched that is very not a sexy movie you know yes I agree um, yes so I but then like I just kept coming, coming back to it and like this is also like when like my peak phase of like searching for like conspiracy theories around movies and so like Eyes Wide Shut was always a movie that had a lot of like you know, a lot of like conspiracy around it of like, what does it all mean? And like, what, you know, like, did, like, was Kubrick murdered? You know, like stuff like stupid stuff like that when I was like 20. 
and um and uh, also this movie that like, gave me nightmares i thought like the orgy scene that like, gave me nightmares i mean it's still wow. a little it still freaks me out a, a little um and um yeah so and then i just kept watching it over and over again and then i i watched it in the theater as well when it, it i think like every holiday season like some art house theater here in new york um does a a showing of it i think there's one coming up that i might miss cuz i'll still be out of town for the holiday but um i uh i watched it then and like that's when it really clicked for me because being with an audience and like i think like i noticed how like funny it could be and just like how much of its like weird kind of like off balance stiltedness was like kind of very intentional and also like you know now that i know more about kubrick you know i've seen the shining i'd seen 2001 barry linden um and i watched a lot of those um the earlier this year um just you know just cuz like there are a lot of them on hbo max so i watched a lot of them there um and uh yeah so i i'm like i like 2001 i think a lot more than you do i guess but it's not really a favorite i think it's a movie that i put on because like just cuz like i find it so like you know, it's so it's such a blank movie that you can really just put anything onto it, and like I don't really understand it yet. Um, but yeah, so I guess I'm I'm not like I do like Kubrick a lot, and I find his movies to be very puzzling, very baffling, um, and um, I find that I come away with a different interpretation each time. Like I want to do The Shining on this podcast for this bad romance miniseries because I find that to be a very interesting marriage movie. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to doing that, but it's just like, anytime I kind of watch one of his movies, I kind of come away with the, something a little different. And I think with Eyes Wide Shut, like, it's such a, um, uh, I don't know, I think it's, it's a movie that I think reveals itself to more and more, the more you watch it. And I think it's not surprising that, like, you know, you're mixed on it. And a lot of, I, knew, I do know a lot of people are very mixed on it. I know that like it had like a really bad reputation when it first came out, which doesn't really surprise me because I think it's something that is, um, it's kind of a withholding movie, in my opinion. It doesn't really, um, uh, it doesn't really like, uh, it, yeah, it, it kind of makes you like, it really kind of like, it's kind of a punishing movie, I guess is what I mean. Like, it's um a lot of like just like walking around a lot of dialogue that feels very um bizarre and like robotic i guess and people's decisions don't really make sense and there's a mystery that you don't really know if it gets solved or not and it's you know takes place in this like soundstage version of new york which like doesn't look real at all but also feels like very dreamlike um so I don't know. I just find it to be a really fascinating movie. And I, I'm curious to see if you rewatch it again and again, which maybe you're probably not inclined to do so. But I wonder what it would feel like for you to watch it, you know, three more times to see if it if something clicks there for you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because everything you're saying, the way that you're describing it, I, I agree with you. I think you're right about all of those things. You're describing yeah. it accurately yeah. but to me. I just didn't find that stuff engaging. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is fascinating in a way just to think, what is he doing here? Right. <laughs> and why? <laughs> and how? And um, of course, 
we we never really will find out because he he died you know right as as he was finishing this film but um yeah i i, I guess for me i i find all of those things like you were saying true the the idea that it is you know it's the soundstage world but i guess to me i feel like it, you're talking about certain things that are intentional, and I, I, I know obviously Kubrick is an is an incredibly meticulous filmmaker, and all of the things he does are intentional. But I feel like some of the things that don't work for me in this film, I wonder if they're intentional. Like, is it intentionally funny? Is the dialogue intentionally this unnatural and stilted? Um, you read about like the soundstage version of New York and how he did all this ridiculous research down to, you know, exactly, you know, how many inches apart are these signs and things like that. Like he wanted it to look real. And yet you're right. It doesn't look real. <laughs> it looks like this dream world. And I, I, I just, I don't know. To me, I, I can't quite get on board with the idea that this all is on purpose and i guess i don't get enough of a feeling from it being unnatural and it doesn't feel like a surrealist film it feels like a movie that's trying to be naturalistic and fails interesting um yeah well that's really the impression that i had of it you know when i was first watching it i think in the first couple times i watched it where it's like it, yeah it doesn't feel uh, yeah interesting yeah because i agree with you like i think that you know, Kubrick being so meticulous and wanting to perfectly recreate New York. But to me, it's like the more, I mean, the more you try to recreate the New York, the more fake it looks just because like what makes, you know, I live in New York. I mean, I, I live in Brooklyn. Um, so not in Manhattan, but, uh, you know, to me, it's like when it's like when I watch like Friends or Seinfeld, both of which, you know, were shot in L.A., I think and they go out on the street, it's like, they try to make it look realistic, but it just doesn't, it's like, I don't know, there's like, it doesn't have the like the spirit of New York. And I think this movie doesn't really have the spirit of New York. But um, I, because I, I think on one hand, I think you're right. To me, it's kind of like a hack thing or kind of a cliche thing to be like, oh, it's intentionally this or that, like everything's intentional because like, you know, no, you know, even someone like Kubrick, I mean, he's still like human, he was still a human being, like, I'm sure that like, he had, you know, he had his own blind spots. And he had like, you know, I'm sure he made his own, like, things that he might have corrected later, you know, if he had lived, but it's just, um, to me, like this movie kind of operates on this like dream logic. And uh, I don't think it's surrealistic, but I do think that it is um, I think it's almost like hyper realistic where everyone is just like super like they're just like trying so hard to be naturalistic and like um, you know like the famous thing about Kubrick is that he does like a thousand takes or whatever <laughs> and I feel like a lot of line readings have that like feeling of like um, you know when you've done something so many times and you just like go a little crazy and then like the wildest thing you can do or especially a lot of like Nicole Kinman's line readings feels like someone who's been like, you know, on the brink of like going a little crazy. <laughs> um, and, um, and that's still that, like, I, that feeling of just um, trying to like, just like that, that like robotic feeling. I think it really captures to me what he, what I think he's going for, which is just like these, these relationships, these interactions are also transactional. 
you know, and that like they're kind of play acting that this is like natural and normal and organic relationships, but everything is so, you know, this for that. Does that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think, yes, there is a lot of the sense that maybe the characters are play acting with each other. And I mean, to, to jump way, way ahead to like the end of the movie, when uh, Sidney Pollack's character is attempting to explain to Bill Harford, to Tom Cruise, like what happened at this orgy. And he essentially says everything was play acting. That is maybe in some way a key to how these interactions are like he's saying everything that you saw there that you were so rattled by that seemed scary and intimidating was all this show that was put on for your benefit and you could almost imagine that everything that happens to bill as he wanders through new york even the people that he encounters who have nothing to do or seem to have nothing to do with this secret society and with the orgy are somehow part of this play like bill is in an immersive theater production that exists yeah. in the entirety of new york solely for his own benefit and i think that's an interesting way to look at it but i also think that especially at the very very end of the movie the point or what seems to me to be the point is to strengthen the relationship between bill and alice that they go through this ordeal and it brings them closer than ever and that their relationship at least is supposed to be genuinely emotional rather than transactional by the end and i got no genuine emotion from anything in this film yeah i mean i might push you a bit on that as well um because as they're walking through the toy store i mean i love this toy store scene for many reasons but you know, they're talking about this relationship, but to me, it seems like they're almost saying like, like the last line of the movie is fuck, right? And they're like, that's the one thing they need to do. But to me, it's like, no, actually, you should probably like, actually have like a long conversation, a therapeutic conversation about it. And that like, sex isn't going to solve this problem for them. So it's, I again, I feel like it's still playing to that thing of like, I'm not, I'm not totally buying the... I'm not sure. It's, I'm sure I buy the fact that like this, their marriage is now resolved. I think they're still going to have these issues, and I think that like they're putting a bandaid on it. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's like it's still this transactional thing of like, you know, oh, it's in order for us to like move past this, we have to like do this thing to get the result that we want to get. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously they need to go to therapy, but, yeah. <laughs> but I feel like this is this is the other thing is that Kubrick seems to not have any concept of human romantic and sexual relationships and would not even understand therapy. I think the the whole inciting sort of incident for this film is the idea that Bill can't process that his wife has had a sexual fantasy. And it mm -hmm. just seems so basic to me that, I mean, I think this is part of the problem that, that what sends him on this, this spiral is so mild and so nothing. This is a movie that's famously like explicit and depraved. And yet the, 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 sort of traumatic event that bill is processing here is so vanilla is so it's so nothing and i think that's also part of what i find frustrating about this movie is that it's dark and mysterious and everything that 
he experiences that you think is like you were saying, there's a mystery that doesn't get solved. It all amounts to nothing. And I think that's what's frustrating. And, and another thing that you could maybe argue is intentional, right? That Bill in his own head makes this out to be grand conspiracies and danger and secrets. And really, it's just a bunch of bored rich people fucking, right? It's really a whole bunch of nothing. And it's in his mind. But it's like, we have to go along with that for two and a half hours. And it gets a bit tedious to me. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um you know, I guess like my my big takeaway from watching it again this time. So I watch this movie every holiday season. It's uh, this movie and Carol and the holiday are like my three, you know, holiday staples. Um, and so my big takeaway this movie is just like how much of this movie is just about Tom Cruise, both as both like as his character, but also like in a meta sense as himself, like, you know, Top Gun movie star or whatever is like relentlessly humiliated and emasculated throughout the entire two hours and 40 minutes of, of this runtime. Um, and um, and it's like every scene is about how little power he actually has. So like, even when he goes to the holiday party at the beginning of the film, he doesn't know anyone except for another, except for another employee of the party, the piano player played by Todd Field. And then almost immediately, even when he is like flirting with like two other, you know, mo- these two models who are also probably paid to be there, um, he gets taken away and like put to work as a doctor. And um, he's basically treated like an employee. Um, and, you know, he says that like, you know, he does house calls. That's why he's getting invited to the party. But it's almost like he's getting invited to this party so that he does house calls so that he like, can do these kinds of like favors for his for Ziegler and then throughout the whole movie it's like all of these situations where he's just getting um either like you know like his wife emasculates him by having this fantasy and um I mean it's it's like normal for like us as well adjusted you know people like of course the, your partner's gonna have fantasies with other people that's just like part of life but for someone who like thinks of himself as like the center of the universe someone who like thinks that he's this like you know rich high class is really important guy you know flashing his medical license as if he's a cop like that that revelation that he's not the center of his wife's universe like shatters him and in a way that I find to be like very like comedic in like an operatic kind of way of like it's you know it's like um it's like so silly and and foolish that he would do this and that it would be so rattled that he spends you know countless amounts of money um in cash which is like you know not not even a credit card but like his actual cash which he has to get from his direct bank account um and you know hours trying to you know basically one up the score but he can't do it because like he gets you know cocked in every situation where like either he's with the prostitute and his wife calls or he's with um you know he's with his other patient's daughter who confesses his love but then you know her boyfriend comes and um you know he can't he that's not even an option for him and even when he tries to call her back i think to get another affair or something 
um, or to get another chance with her, you know, the boyfriend picks up and he, you know, again, gets sort of, and even when he's in a situation where there's, you know, sex all around him, but he's available to him, he gets found out, um, whisked away and humiliated. And again, found out in a way that's like really, um, really like, uh, like infantilizing of like, we knew that you were in, like, they immediately clocked that he didn't belong there. They knew his name. They knew he came in a taxi. They knew he came in with, like, clothes from a costume shop, not a tailored tuxedo. Um, so it's, like, in all these situations that like, he comes in, like, even with the other, even with, like, the prostitute's um, roommate, again, he, like, gets found out that, like, he almost, like, risked, you know, getting infected with, um, so it's like all these situations where it's like relentless like his imagined status as this like important affluent person just gets completely reduced in every scene of the movie and so to me it's like yeah of course it's a little ridiculous that he's so shattered by this revelation but he has such an inflated sense of himself that um of course something as minor as that would completely ruin his entire self-image yeah, um I mean I I think again I feel like you're 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 right about all that. I I question whether that's what we're meant to take away from it, not that you can't take away that or that you can't enjoy it for something that wasn't intended. Um but I feel like the movie means more for you to be on his side or at least within his perspective. And the idea that yes, you're right. He he thinks of himself as this super powerful guy, and he's really very very easily taken down. Not only by people like Ziegler, who is like much richer and more powerful than he is, but by people who are not richer or more powerful than he is, like like the prostitutes or uh, like the the hotel clerk played by Alan Cumming, who is clearly super hot for him and basically draws out their interaction so he can spend as much time leering over Tom Cruise <laughs> as he wants, which is very entertaining. And, uh, and, you know, and that guy is certainly not more powerful necessarily than, than Bill is. Um, I, I just feel like to me, it's like your perspective is right, but the movie's perspective is Bill's perspective. And that's what gets just a little, again, a little tedious for me. Like, I can see how pathetic this guy is, and yet I still have to watch him walk around <laughs> and seethe and try to not be pathetic, and I just am sort of over that. Um, I wish he were cucked. He's not even cucked. She does nothing <laughs> at all whatsoever. He does far more than she does uh, in terms of actual interactions with people, and the worst that she does as a physical interaction is to dance with that guy at the beginning of the movie and then put him off, doesn't even let him kiss her or anything like that while bill is raring to go at least with uh the prostitute's roommate right you get the sense that if she didn't sit him down and tell him about the hiv infection that he would have been happy to have sex with her so maybe that's his his like sad effort at overcompensating for the fact that his wife once had a sexual fantasy but i just i don't know i just can't be on board with it as a viewer spending time with this guy and and watching what he does and finding that 
rewarding, I think, is the problem. But I mean, I think your reading, however, is is totally right. And that is what makes this movie, I think, interesting, even though I can't really say that I like it. Well, I don't think this movie is rewarding. I think it's punishing. <laughs> I mean, okay. It's, but is it punishing it, you or is it punishing Bill? Well, it's punishing Bill, I think. Yeah. And I felt like um, it was sort of punishing me along with him. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, it is quite long. And I mean, I guess you're right, but it's like, uh to me it's like well you know this is what the movie's about so like i i guess i i guess i kind of take issue with like oh i have to watch this character and it's like well you don't like you can turn it off well sure uh, but no, i mean I if i'm if i'm, I'm on board glib. With, yeah i'm gonna watch this movie yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know no, that's no, what I i've know. gotten I'm being a little glib i think yeah um but um yeah i mean i guess it's I don't know. I also may, I'm also wondering, like, how much of this am I supposed to, like, you know, 1999 audiences versus like 2022 audiences? Like, I wonder, like, you know, were there people in the audience who were like, yeah, like, of course, like, he wouldn't go on this, like, odyssey, you know, and like, on his perspective versus like someone now when we like, have a little bit more awareness of like, you know, masculinity and like the, the, you know, the traps that masculinity sets for us, you know, and like wounded egos and stuff. I mean, I, that's it's always something I wonder when I watch movies from like older time periods. I mean, the 90s weren't that long ago, but um, right. Yeah. But yeah, no, I just I know it's just interesting to to think about that. And like I um, I don't know if you listen to um, uh, Blank Check a podcast. Um, I I don't. I mean, I'm aware of it, but I I'm yeah. They not just, a listener. They just covered Stanley Kubrick, and they talked about Eyes Wide Shut. Um, and uh, I think that's they they came at this movie with this idea of it's like the because I guess Stanley Kubrick was Jewish. I um, as like a like Jewish person's idea of like the Christmas season and <laughs> um, <laughs> and how it's like, this movie is like totally devoid of like holiday cheer. And that's something I, I read about it as well. Um, Cause like, like I said, I watched something in the holidays. I think it's like a Christmas movie in the sense that it's about like the commodification and, and like transactional nature of the holiday season. Um, especially of like, you have these people who are like not celib- they're like, you know, they're going to an orgy. They're like, visiting sex workers they are like um you know going about their this like sort of like midnight odyssey right but that's and um but during the holiday season instead of spending time with their family you know it's it's funny how like the days leading up to christmas bill is um not really at home with his family as <laughs> much at all and he's so wrapped up in this like um in this like little mission he has that he just is like, Oh yeah, it's December 23rd. I'm just going to be walking around all night and lie to my family and stuff. Yeah. Um, um I, I think I, and this is just like from, from Wikipedia or whatever, but I guess that uh, the novel that this is inspired by the characters are Jewish and supposedly Kubrick was very adamant about making them not Jewish in this film. And, and maybe that is because of what you're saying. Like he, he wanted to show his perspective on the way that people celebrate the holidays, people who celebrate Christmas celebrate the holiday. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it is very Christmassy and um, in a weird way. And I think I actually, I, I wrote a, 
thing recently. I had to do a bunch of articles on Christmas movies to watch on various streaming services. And I included this in my article on Netflix Christmas movies, yeah. <laughs> um, in part just because I, I needed something to fill out the list. But right, right. Um, but but I don't think that it's wrong to say that this is a Christmas movie. And I think it's also the idea that at Christmas, uh you know, there's so much family togetherness that's that's sort of mandated at Christmas that it can cause you to question your relationships more so than yeah. other times. And, mm-hmm. and that might be part of it here as well. Like this is the time when his family unit is highlighted the most and thus also becomes the most fragile, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that's if that's what they're aiming for there or not. But um, I, I, yeah, sure. Why not? I think this can be a Christmas movie. If Die Hard is a Christmas movie, then Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. Oh God. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think that like, you know, this movie, you know, Christmas, like Christmas movies, I feel like, you know, especially like the more like, you know, I think there's like tiers of Christmas movies, right? It's like, you know, it has movies like this and then like kind of like anti like, like anti-Christmas type movies are like, you know, the Die Hard, which is like unconventional. And then you have like the good ones, like The Holiday or It's a Wonderful Life or, you know, and then you have like the Hallmark Netflix ones, which are just like, you know, generic and cookie cutter and stuff. And like, you know, those movies feel so like standardized and they feel very much like, um, you know, kind of like reinforcing the family unit you know, in sometimes unconventional ways, sometimes very like waspy, you know, Anglo-Saxon, like Christian ways of like, you know, family with like husband and wife and two kids and, you know, um, and so I like, I agree with you that this movie really, you know, has, is about the questioning of the family unit and like what is really underneath the the surface of the, of the family, like, on one hand, Bill has the perfect life. You know, he's a wealthy doctor, semi-respected in his community, has a beautiful wife who is, like, devoted to him, has a cute little daughter. But underneath, it's like, they're smoking pot, they're flirting with other people at parties, they're arguing about evolution and, you know, what it means, like, what do women want, what do men want? Um, And, you know, and he goes on this whole odyssey trying to, and again, like, you know, Ziegler at the end says, if you knew who the people were at this party, you wouldn't be able to sleep. And it's like, again, like, I'm sure these are all people who are like upstanding people on the surface, but like underneath, you know, like there's corruption and drugs and, you know, prostitution and, and, um, and stuff like that. And I, I like that this movie really has you question the family unit. And I think placing it at Christmas, I think, did it place it at Mardi Gras in the original novella? I think I read that. Yeah, um, I think you're right. So I think by putting at Christmas, it like kind of puts into sharp relief this idea of like what you're saying is like families can be very fragile, even if on the surface they are perfect and, um, you know, like respectable. Right. And that's a potentially interesting theme. Um, I wanted to go back to, though, to what you said about whether audiences in 1999 would have been sort of more, I don't know, I guess, what would you say, more more prudish or less yeah. less progressive maybe right. than we are now. And in a broad sense, you know, probably so. But I was thinking as I was watching this movie of David Cronenberg a lot and 
like Cronenberg's Crash, for example, came out, I think, three years earlier than this. And maybe it wasn't as mainstream as this, but it certainly wasn't some no budget independent production. And I think he'd been exploring a lot of these very deviant sexual themes in his films for decades at that point already anyway. And that was just kind of what what I thought of off the top of my head, because I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg. And I kept thinking about how he would have done better with this material, I guess. So, I mean, I feel like something out of the sexual norm was definitely out there. I think maybe we're giving not enough credit to people in 1999 that that they would have been so sheltered or whatever that they wouldn't have been able to handle the idea of a woman having a sexual fantasy. I mean, the sexuality in this movie is so not deviant. It's it's almost all just basic heterosexual coupling, right? Even you walk around the orgy and I don't know, maybe I, I could have paused it and studied it more closely, but I'm pretty sure it's all just men and women, right? In fairly standard sexual positions. <laughs> in this supposedly ridiculously depraved orgy and everything that that bill does or attempts to do is all fairly vanilla sex he's going to meet a sex worker but it's not like she's going to peg him or something like that i mean that never even comes up and you know and i don't know how you feel about this but the one interaction that 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 sort of hints at the idea of like well i guess there's two interactions that hint at the idea of homosexuality in this film there's one is his interaction with alan cumming and the other is when those kind of frat bros harass him on the street and and i don't know that that felt also like kubrick maybe sees those things as as so alien or whatever so i don't know to me watch this and watch crash and kubrick is the one who comes off like a prude yeah, I mean, I think this movie is aggressively heterosexual in a way that, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure I could do a queer reading of this movie as, like, as a satire of heterosexuality, um, because, like, I agree, the orgy scene is, like, so not sexy. I mean, it's, like, I think it's, it's like, the intimacy is missing from from that, you know, and it's, like, I think it's, like, the masks, it's, like, the the tuxedos or whatever they're all wearing it's like it's so removed from any kind of sexual or like erotic intimacy um and uh i think that it's um fascinating to me to think about it in that sense and like i i yeah i mean i guess i i guess the difference between kubrick and or the between this movie and crash is that you know this movie has like two of the top stars so it has just like already like I remember, I, I remember reading that like there's so much anticipation about this movie. Like they thought it was going to be this like really sexy movie with like, um, like I remember reading like one plot line that people thought the movie was about was like two psychiatrists who have affairs with their patients and like you know Tom Cruise they're going to do like full nudity and like unsimulated sex scenes and stuff. Um, and then like I think that's why this movie kind of like didn't really have the best reception because like people had all these anticipation for it and um i mean cronenberg like i think he's also he's canadian like this is very much an american i know this movie was shot in britain of course but like kubrick is american like the movie stars are american movie stars like um you know tom cruise is like mr america and um also cronenberg i feel like he might not be like totally indie but he's also like more underground especially like kubrick at this point like you know, he still has like, like, he's more mainstream, I think, than, um, 
Cronenberg would be. I mean, maybe maybe that's just like a. I guess I when I'm, I guess what I mean is that like this movie. I think my question was about like more like mainstream people who are like, you know, were like were there any men in this movie like and men in the audience for this movie being like, yeah, I would do the same thing. Like I don't I don't believe that my wife has any other kind of, you know. Right, and and I'm sure there were, but yeah. I guess my 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 feeling, right, my feeling about this movie was that this movie was like it was made by one of those men. <laughs> I just kind of couldn't take that seriously, but um, yeah, I mean, Cronenberg is more of an outsider. I guess I was also I just looked up because we we did an episode in Awesome Movie Year also about Basic Instinct, which is from 1992, and I you know Paul Verhoeven is another filmmaker I think of who is a lot more engaged with deviant sexuality and could have made a more interesting version of this and certainly is mainstream. I mean, Basic Instinct was a massive, massive hit and did star. I mean, Sharon Stone wasn't a star at the time, but Michael Douglas certainly was. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was a controversial movie, of course. And I think a lot of there was a lot of pearl clutching (laughs) among audiences from that movie. But I think you can watch Basic Instinct now. And yeah, it seems a lot tamer now than it did in 1992. But you can see how it could be transgressive in certain ways. Whereas I just don't see that in this film. Um, and and I don't know, you know, maybe I've seen too many movies that are too kinky or something like that. And I was looking up like, when did Secretary come out, for example? Um, or we could talk about like Sex, Lies and Videotape, right? Which is, yes, is an indie film, but became a mainstream thing. I don't know. I just feel like this, you're right that Kubrick was more mainstream than all of those things that I just mentioned. And he's this sort of, at this point, you know, toward the end of his career, he's this sort of towering figure of filmmaking. It's like if Steven Spielberg made this movie right now or something like that, imagine him making some kind of kinky sex movie. Um, And so it's like, it, it feels like it's his sort of ivory tower or maybe not ivory tower because he's not an academic but you know he's he's Ziegler right that's him he's this incredibly wealthy sort of guy in out of touch with humanity trying to make a movie about sexual deviance and it just it comes off like again it's fascinating in a way for how poorly he seems to understand sexuality but but i yeah i don't know i can't i can't quite uh be on board with it um is there anything in this movie that you appreciate or is it just like across the board no i didn't i don't hate i don't hate it and 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 i do i do think it's kind of it it is sort of fascinating. It's tedious and fascinating at the same time, I think, because I am fascinated by his what to me seem like failed efforts to make that kind of Cronenberg Verhoeven erotic thriller. See, I don't think TV. he's trying to do that. Um, and I definitely don't think this movie is about sexual deviancy. In fact, I think it's almost the opposite. I think it's like about um, because like I feel like this, you know, if I don't think this movie is trying to expose like, oh, like, you know, there's like sexual deviancy, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't think this, I don't think of this movie on the same level as like a basic instinct or, I mean, sex lies and videotape. I mean, even that movie, like, I mean, I, I don't consider that really like kinky movie. I mean, I guess it kind of, I mean, I guess it is, but. Yeah, um, I mean. 
I think this is closer to that than it is to Basic Instinct. I guess, like, I just don't think of this movie as, like, trying to do that. or And so I don't see it failing that. I think it's almost, like, in some ways about, like, sexual rigidity. um, That, like, the only way these people can really find some kind of sexual satisfaction is through this, like, bizarre, ritualized, unerotic party where they're all in masks and they're just, like, reenacting, like boring sex acts you know like right to me that's like it's it's like i'm not like i don't think this movie's trying to be like kinky or weird i think it's almost trying to be like you know at the at the heart of like that like their deviancy isn't that they're like engaging in this kind of like sex orgy but more more so that like it's people in power who like can't really express their sexuality in any meaningful way beyond this like you know, weird kind of weird, like, um, scenario. And that someone like Bill can't, like, he can't escape his own rigidity to the sense of like, where something so minor shatters his entire sense of self-worth and sense of self. And he has to go, he has no clue how to like, um, like to me, like the, like, um, the more like the more deviant part of this movie is like Milich and his daughter and that whole you know upsetting subplot, right. you know where he's like pro- eventually pimping out his own teenage daughter, and like there's like whatever happened in that like 24 hours, right? It's like that to me is like ooh, this is taboo <laughs> because like some kind of transactional deal was made between those men and Milich for his daughter's innocence or whatever, and to me that is like that's the most thing um but yeah so i i guess i just don't think of this movie as trying to be like it is like an erotic mystery movie but i don't think of it as like an erotic in the, in the way that like you know basic instinct or body heat or you know even like double indemnity are sexy you know like i just think it's like trying to i think it's almost having like the opposite thing and like i think even those movies i mean basic incident i think and fatal attraction like disclosure i think all three of those in some ways reinforce heteronormativity as well. Um, I mean, I'm sure you could read like scholarly articles that argue both sides of that debate, but like I think there are arguments that like something like um, you know, basic instinct or like, you know, fatal attraction reinforces this like, you know, in the same way that Eyes Wide Shut ends with like sort of like the reinstatement of this like heterosexual married couple, fatal attraction for sure ends that way. And so like the only sexual deviant is this like professional sexy woman who just had a fling and she turns into a murderer and right. then dies for it, you know, like so that's yeah. also I think very a conservative movie. I mean, you could read it that way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're hundred percent right about fatal, fatal attraction. I think basic instinct, I mean, having seen it fairly recently and, and talked about it in a podcast, I think there is more deviance and there's more queerness in basic instinct than in fatal attraction, even though in some ways it enforces that. But I think there's a lot of winks and sort of clever little uh, twists that Verhoeven throws in that, that uh, sort of question that whole uh, structure. So, um, but, but I, I also, I think you're right that this is, it's less 
like those sort of erotic thrillers that were that were a big deal in the 90s, right? All those movies that you just named. I really feel like it's closer to Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is yeah. not a thriller and is a movie that is really about exploring the desires that these characters have and having them question those desires and try to understand what their desires are. And I think that's what this movie is more trying to do. And, and you know, not to, to harp on the same points, but... I feel like it is trying to, that it is failing that. And I think your point about this movie being about sexual rigidity and these characters who can't, uh, can't deviate from that. I feel like that's that's the movie. That's Kubrick. Kubrick is those people. And, and I find this to be like Kubrick's efforts to 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 be deviant and failing so i i don't know i mean again i don't think you're wrong about any of your readings here and that's why i think this is that's why also i don't mind spending time getting into this movie even though i don't really like it (laughs) right because i think there's a lot to get into yeah um so but but yeah i mean in terms of of whether a movie is is erotic itself and and i think you know that maybe this movie doesn't actually want to be erotic it wants to in fact highlight how not erotic these things are as you're saying yeah so you know i don't think this is on par with other movies that are actually are kind of arousing in their own way or are meant to be arousing um but i also think as an exploration of the idea of what is erotic and what is sexual desire? How do we express sexual desire? How do characters process their sexual desires? I just don't, I think this movie is so facile when it comes to that. And I don't think it understands, just as Bill doesn't seem to understand his own sexual desires, I don't think the movie understands its sexual desires. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I I guess I'm, I'm having, I don't, I never thought about like, Kubrick as like the Ziegler figure or like as only because like Ziegler is barely in the movie. I mean, he's in, of course, like I think one of the best scenes and like the like 15 minute scene that he has with Tom Cruise. But like, you know, it's not like we know anything more about whoever is at that party. I mean, and I don't even know if Kubrick sees himself as Tom Cruise and maybe he had some sort of similar realization with his own. I don't know enough about Kubrick as, as a person. To well, know, neither do I. Like, I'm totally speculating here. Yeah, like maybe he feels like he's like Nicole Kidman, or maybe he doesn't see himself as any character. Um, I, I don't know enough, and you know, like like you said, we'll never really know because he never had a chance to like do interviews about this movie or like provide a commentary or anything like that. Um, I think I I feel like I imagine he's very much uh, allergic to providing these kinds of answers to his own movies i think oh yeah the reason why they're so why it's so easy to return to them over and over again is that like they're very like they're like ciphers you know you kind of put onto them what you know the reason the kubrick stare is so famous is that you really have to like assign your own interpretations to it um but yeah i mean is there anything like what about the performances in this movie like what uh, do they stick out to you in a positive or negative sense? Well, I mean, I think as you're pointing out, Kubrick is famous, right, for doing those those dozens and dozens of takes, and that can lead to these weirdly robotic performances. Um, I think part of the reason, and I know David Fincher is another director who's famous for doing so many takes, and and I think 
from his perspective, either he said or people have said about it that it kind of strips away the artifice. And so it's the opposite of getting a robotic performance. It gets to the true emotion of it because the actors are not able to think about it anymore because they're so, I don't know, exhausted or whatever. Um, but to me, the performances here, whether it's from Kubrick's direction or it's because of the actors, although like you, I think Nicole Kidman is great. And I think she's I think her range is a bit limited, but I think she's great at playing exactly the kind of character she plays in this movie, which is this mm -hmm. sort of upper crust, um, semi-repressed, um, cold on the outside, but with a lot going on under the surface kind of character. Um, so I think this is perfectly, like she's perfectly cast in this film. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think the performances go along with the whole like non-naturalistic feel of this film. I feel like just as the sets are this incredibly meticulous yet obviously false creation of New York, I feel like the performances are incredibly meticulous but obviously false recreations of people in a yeah. way. So, <laughs> right, right. And then again, and you can view that as on purpose and you can view that as a strength of the film. So um, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're bad performances. I feel like they almost transcend goodness or badness. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think there's fun, like supporting performances. I, I, you know, I forgot that Alan Cumming was in this movie. And of course, he's always very entertaining to watch. And that was a fun little scene with him as this incredibly horny uh, hotel clerk or whatever. Um, I, I liked seeing the as you're describing the the costume shop owner and his his daughter and that whole really fucked up dynamic they have and i thought um what i can't pronounce his name raid sherbegia who plays the the costume shop owner who's a great character actor who always plays weird sleazy guys um was was a lot of fun there so yeah, I don't know. It is also nice to see, you know, we can argue about whether this movie is sexy or not, but it is certainly a movie with a lot of sex in it and a lot of uh, human relationships or whatever. And I feel like yeah. Tom Cruise has very aggressively distanced, him distanced himself from doing anything that could be romantic or sexual in his movies, even in Top Gun Maverick, where he has this whole relationship with Jennifer Connelly. Like it, it feels very antiseptic in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so it was nice sure. to see that, that he used to do that. I mean, I love, for example, Risky Business is I think a really underrated and really great Tom Cruise movie that is, has a lot, actually a lot to say about sexual dynamics. Again, to yeah. pick up another one of those from the eighties. Um, so it was nice to be reminded that Cruise used to do that and could do that. I know it's, um, I feel like this movie and Magnolia just like broke him. And I feel like <laughs> he's so afraid to do anything like this ever again. And like, I, I don't love Top, Top Gun Maverick at all. Um, I do love the Mission Impossible movies, but like, and I think he's great in those movies, but I'm like, okay, but like, come on, let's, you need to get like, you know, going back to like Fincher, you need to like get in touch with him and like make him break you down like Kubrick <laughs> and Paul Thomas Anderson did. And like Risky Business, of course, is, is a classic. Um, uh, I, I really like Nicole Kidman's performance in me. I mean, it's so, it's so funny to think about like Nicole Kidman in the 2000s because I feel like she, her career has kind of went up and down. Um, and then, of course, I, I think it picked back up like after Rabbit Hole and of course Big Little Lies. And, you know, she's so great at the Northmen um this year and it's like this movie i think is like a really good um encapsulation of why she's such a wild why she's, and she's a very unpredictable actress like to this day when i watch the pod scene I, her line readings throw me off you know <laughs> and like her own kubrick stares are so cutting and 
Um, yeah, I, I think they're both really good in the movie. I mean, I, I think Tom Cruise, it's like, to me, he's like going back to Fincher, like he's like Ben Affleck in Gone Girl of like, this movie is such a like meta exploration of like who you are as a movie star <laughs> that like it's wild that, you know, it, it, he put in the work to, to make this movie and that he worked with someone like Kubrick who really could like, you know, beat, beat this performance out of him. Um, I think a favorite performance of mine is Marie Richardson, who plays, um, oh God, I can't remember the name, but it's um, Tom Cruise's like patient's daughter. Um, she gives a really good eye performance. Like when I saw this movie in the theaters a couple years ago, like I noticed her eyes were like darting all over the room while she's talking to him, like confessing her love for him. And it always, it always struck me. It's a great performance. And I love how she's kind of like this like weird mirror version of Nicole Kidman. Um, and that her boyfriend looks just like Tom Cruise, <laughs> like same kind of hairstyle and like way of dressing. And again, like I love that scene because it's like, you know, Nicole Kidman is this whole monologue where she was like, for one night, I would have left everything to be with this man. And that shakes Tom Cruise. And then he hears that about himself from a woman who looks just like his wife, where she's like, I want to leave everything for you. Um, and it's like weird kind of like mirrored, like double um, parallel in these two relationships. And, you know, Marie Richardson ends up staying with her boyfriend, and he stays up with, and Nicole Kidman stays with him, but it's like this like double whammy of like situation where these two women are like mirrors of each other. So I always like that little parallel um, that really doesn't get commented on much because it's very early in the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, and then uh, I, yeah, I think all the performances in the movie are really striking um, because I, I, again, like I do love that like hyper real robotic, unhuman like kind of way that these characters interact like even like the minor characters like the waitress at the diner or the waitress at the cafe or todd field or the two models that he meets at the parties like uh, to me that's just like the kubrick way of acting and like um it reminds me a little bit about like you know the movie tar that came out um I did a whole episode with my friend Rotata on his Cape Blanchett podcast about tar and his relationship to eyes wide shut so I uh, listeners should go listen to that as well. Sundays with Kate, because um, I think I think Tar has a lot of Kubrick in him and a lot of Eyes Wide Shut in him uh, in it. So um, definitely recommend that. I love Tar. Did, have you seen Tar? I haven't seen Tar yet. That's that's one of the big movies from this year that I just haven't gotten to, and I definitely want to. Um, You'll have to message me your thoughts because like <laughs> it's very Kubrickian in my opinion, in the kind of a similar way where it's like these people don't act like human beings. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see if that works for you there. I think it might, because it's a little bit more, it's less extreme than this movie is. Um, but uh, yeah, so please keep us all informed <laughs> on that. Yes, I will, um, I will let you know. And I did like, you know, watching the movie this time and knowing that Kate Blanchett has that weird little voice cameo. I was yeah, sort of yeah. waiting, waiting for that and trying to recognize her. But um, I mean, I think going back to one of the things you're saying there about like the supporting performances and and the the, the sort of the weird robotic nature of all these performances, I think it it goes back to that idea that we were talking about earlier that all of these people, it's not necessarily you could look at it as not just these actors are performing in the movie, but that the characters are performing in this weird 
sort of play acting thing that is all for Bill's benefit. Like, you know, they're yeah. not, they're not people with internal lives because they're not people, you know, they're all just, you could imagine them all just kind of standing around waiting for Bill to enter their, uh, spaces in order for them to start doing stuff like he walks into that cafe and no one in there was actually doing anything until he walked in or whatever see, right because- i love see like i think you're making fun of the movie by saying that but like i love this read of it because like i'm next time i watch it i'm gonna think of it like that because like as this like weird yeah like immersive like nightmare scenario where like you know virtual reality situation i mean i love that actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily making fun no, of the I movie. No, I know, I know. I, I, I think that it's something that the movie is inviting there. And I, yeah. I again, I feel like it's something that is sort of half-formed and you can imagine, but I don't know that it it, it holds together necessarily. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, that's certainly an idea there or the idea that all of this represents a dream. And, and of course, the, the book that this is based on, which I haven't read, I think it translates the title as like dream novel or dream story or something like that. So the whole idea could be that this is all just in Bill's head, right? Is that it, this is just what he thinks about when he discovers that his wife has had this fantasy and that maybe he didn't do anything. I don't know. Um, I, I, I feel like that reading is less convincing to me, but yeah. is maybe something that's borne out by the book more than the movie. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. Um, I'm, I never read the novel or the novella, but I'm curious to read it. Um, all right. Well, Josh, I mean, I think um, unless you have any of your final thoughts, uh, thanks so much for um, for coming on the podcast. I had a great time discussing this movie with you. I um, I hope you had fun talking about it with me. And of course, I'd love to have you back to talk about a movie that you love and means a lot to you. Um, so please let the listeners know where they can find you and kind of what you're working on. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. And like I said, I'm happy talking about this movie that I didn't (laughs) necessarily like because I think there's a lot to talk about with with it. And I I definitely think it was a fun and hopefully illuminating discussion for people. For sure. Um, You can check me out um, online at uh, joshbellhateseverything.com, although there's not a lot of updates there these days. But I'm also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook. I'm at SignalBleed on Twitter and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And listen to Awesome Movie Year. We, like I said, have talked about Stanley Kubrick a couple times recently. We have an episode on The Shining and an episode on Fear and Desire that are fairly recent episodes. We are in the midst of our season on the films of 1953. Uh, Each season we talk about a different year in film and a different movie from that year in each episode. So we've bounced around. We've done a lot of stuff on the 90s actually and we did a whole season on 1999 although we did not do an episode on Eyes Wide Shut but a lot of other stuff from that year so check out awesomemovieyear.com we are at uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram and at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter Awesome yes please look out for the podcast because it is so much fun to listen to um, really have enjoyed it a lot um, thank you you can find me on twitter at vertigay314 um, also follow the podcast at it pot to be you remember to rate review and subscribe to the show to help people find the show um, we are continuing bad romance miniseries uh, into the new year with uh, christopher nolan's inception um, with, uh, with I think a really kind of a, a interesting take on the movie so um, 
it's going to be kind of a fun conversation. I, I think it's like, uh, yeah, definitely a movie that I never thought I'd cover on this podcast, but here we are. So um, it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. Um, looking forward to rewatching that. Uh, so please look out for that. Um, Josh, thanks again. Lovely to have you. Hope to have you back on the show in, in the future. Um, listeners, uh, thanks for listening and happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs>